0: Hello everyone. Welcome back to our Sabbath School from Home podcast. We've got a great discussion today, and we're going to jump straight into it. Uh, my name's Cameron, and I'm so pleased that you're here with us.
1: Yeah, good day. I'm Ken, and uh, uh, we spent some time yesterday, Cam, collecting an aeroplane that went taxiing around your road this afternoon. I see. That was pretty exciting. Yes,
0: it was. It was very exciting, Ken.
2: And I'm Lachlan, and I'm here in Sydney. This evening it's very windy, so if there's background noise on my end, it's probably just the wind whistling through the rafters. And Luke can't join us this evening because his computer hardware is very busy on the important task of Peppa Pig. So we're going to have to make do without his contributions for this episode.
0: Yeah, especially especially as he's in hotel quarantine and has another two weeks of, uh, of keeping... A very special young lady occupied i think we can forgive him his pepper pig and um, we'll have to make do without him uh the passage we're going to start reading as we have a discussion um, about sharing god's word and what god's word is that we're sharing um, the passage we're going to read is in acts chapter 8 and i'm going to start reading from verse 26 now an angel of the lord said to philip go south to the road the desert road that goes straight down from jerusalem to gaza So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him.
1: The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before this year is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuchs asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began
0: Well, this is a fairly uh, often recited passage uh, when you talk about sharing about evangelism. Many sermons on evangelism seem to draw on this passage, uh, but it is a very difficult precedent to base evangelism off. Do, do we just hang around in our house waiting to be carried off by the Spirit of the Lord? <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I'd, I mean, it, it would suggest it's better to hang around swimming pools or streams or rivers or something, so that you you've got the water handy when you need it. Yeah, so immediately yeah. take advantage of the opportunity for baptism. <laughs> yeah, there there are a number of things going on in this story that I find really fascinating. So, just for reference, the passage of scripture that is quoted here is from Isaiah, and it's Isaiah fifty three, verse seven and eight thereabouts. And that is a, is a broader passage in the book of Isaiah that we definitely do read as a messianic prophecy. So um, it's, it's not hard to see there how Philip could have launched from that to tell the good news about Jesus.
0: And obviously God's Spirit is fairly active in this encounter um, because the angel directs Philip to go to that road at that place at that time while the eunuch is reading that text.
1: And so Philip starts uh, with that text, and that's one of the things that we're often told when we hear the sermons about evangelism. Uh, verse 35, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture. So we, we should start where people are, and probably good advice.
0: As long as they in the right place, Ken. Um, in his fictional diary, Adrian Plass is really concerned about some issue. You know, it's something like, should he go carol singing or should he stay home to watch the latest James Bond film? And he decides that he's going to consult scripture on this and he opens the Bible at a random spot and it says, and Jez- and the dogs licked up the blood. <laughs> um, and he's, he doesn't quite know how to interpret this. So we might not always be able to start where people are in the Bible. In fact, I, I had a discussion, an interesting encounter recently where um, the teacher at my school who teaches philosophy really top bloke fairly firm atheist but absolutely insistent that students should think through things carefully and clearly and he was doing a unit on theism and he said to me he said i can't teach this unit because i don't believe there's a god the students need to hear something from someone who does which is a good indication of, of the sort of intellectual honesty that, that he strives for. And he asked me to come and take a, a class, and the students had a whole bunch of questions. But one of the questions was, unless you cherry-pick verses from the Bible, there's, on the whole, on the balance of it, one of the students suggested that the Bible didn't seem to be a you know, particularly virtuous text. Uh, there are a lot of difficult parts in it.
1: And, and look, I mean, even if we, we now... Uh, go to Isaiah 53 and we look at it and we say, well, there's a picture of, of the Messiah. Uh, but we do that with the benefit of hindsight, and we do that through uh, a tradition. Uh, so when we say the Bible and the Bible alone, uh, even within that uh, framework, uh, we're using uh, tradition to interpret the scripture. I mean, Jesus himself in Luke chapter 10, uh, when he was asked the question, um Uh, which of these is the greatest commandments, his response was, um, what do the scriptures say? How do you read them? Or how do you interpret them? Uh, And so we need some lens through which to interpret uh, the scripture. And when you go to Isaiah 53, um, it's only with the benefit of hindsight and through a tradition of interpretation that you can see that this is a reference to the Messiah. Because there might well be many people who throughout the course of history have been led like a sheep to the slaughter, um, uh, who uh, as a lamb before the shearer was silent and didn't open their mouth, um, many who've been deprived of justice, uh, many whose descendants have been uh, cut off, who've had their lives taken away. So it's really uh, important to recognise that whatever we do when we approach Scripture involves an act of interpretation, and where do we get the assistance with which interpretation we ought?
0: Uh, well, this is take from the text. This is a great question, Ken. The answer is obviously my interpretation. Yes. But Everyone only if it agrees with
1: mine, Cameron.
0: Only if it agrees oh. <laughs> with mine. Um, <laughs> well, can can I just believe whatever the Bible tells well, me. Well, <laughs> I, I think that this
2: story says something different. I think this story says you've got to wait in your chariot with that question until the Holy Spirit brings along miraculously one of the apostles to help you out.
0: Well, but yeah. well, this is, but this is uh, on a serious note, that's exactly what this Ethiopian unique wants, doesn't he? He, he? he recognizes that his deficiency is not in having the text. His deficiency is in the interpretation of it. And that's what he asks Philip for. Mm.
2: This is an interesting challenge for us from the, you know, ever since the Reformation. The Protestant Christian church has prized access to the scriptures. You know, I guess the greatest epitome of this is the, I think, very, very noble and well-intentioned Gideon's Bibles. You find them all through the world on bedside tables next to hotel beds. But it seems a little bit to assume that having access to the Bible is enough or is the more important thing, whereas in this case, the Ethiopian has the access but is is struggling to read. Now, there's a caveat here that I do need to acknowledge. It's possible that there's a language barrier going on here that's part of the issue with the understanding. Um, But if anything, that only highlights the fact that we often have cultural barriers that are at least as strong as language barriers can be when we just randomly flick open to pages of, for example, the Old Testament.
1: And, and there is even the anterior interpretive issue that's associated with that because what we are reading is itself a translation of uh, an original t- a text in a different language. Um, and, and, and so that what that has required is a person to understand the concepts that the symbols being the Greek words uh, represented uh, and to transfer those concepts into this language that we currently have um, and overlaid over that one then has the cultural uh, differences that need to be taken into account
0: and and we not only have the cultural differences we we suffer as Protestants very strongly from a righteous pride in not being Catholic. Specifically, what the Reformation was against, was against the, the Pope as the seat of authority. Uh, this is why um, Protestants, I mean, I guess that's a bit obvious, but this is why Protestants insist on, on everyone being able to form, you have to do personal Bible study. Personal Bible study is a Protestant thing. And the inference is that we shouldn't just blindly accept what other people tell us. Uh, that's put the Protestant church in a huge amount of trouble hasn't it this is why there's still one Roman Catholic Church I mean they've had they've had two groups split off them in two thousand years and there's two thousand Protestant traditions and you, you would have to say that in as much as Christ prayed for unity in the church the sheer proliferation of Protestant traditions is a, is a complete indictment against the message we're trying to send
1: well I think there's a nuanced Response to that, um, and that perhaps is that the differences between the Protestant traditions aren't necessarily a lack of unity, although they do represent diversity.
0: It's also the case, obviously, that that there was good cause for separation or for concern with the direction Roman Catholicism was moving in. I mean, that's I'm not I'm a proud Protestant, but I think that we ought to admit that this idea that the Bible speaks for itself. It has not always worked as well as we'd like.
2: Well and, and we have to admit this, it continues to be an issue. There are certain, you know, trigger issues in any community within within the Adventist community at the moment, there are trigger issues. Um, I imagine a prominent one is is ordination of women and the role of women in the formal authority structures of church leadership. And both sides of that debate bring scripture to their aid. It's the same Bible. Um, they they clearly are, are arriving at slightly different conclusions. And there's a really interesting aspect of this story of Philip and the Ethiopian that I think is is sometimes overlooked. We commented a couple of episodes ago when Peter and Cornelius, um, the story of Peter and Cornelius, the question is asked, a sort of rhetorical
0: question. Who can stop these people Being baptized. Who can
2: stop these people given that the Holy Spirit is already upon them? And there's a really similar construction here in in verse 36. See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? It's a question begging an answer. And if you dig a little bit, there is a really good answer. In Deuteronomy 23, there's a list of those excluded from the assembly of the people of God. This is, of course, Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy. This is um, the sort of Giving of the law, but it starts with no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord, and it then goes on to list the Ammonites and Moabites and um, Edomites and all all sorts of other things. But it starts there a eunuch shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, and I think it's really fascinating because in Acts 8, here
0: well, Locke is. He's not just a eunuch, he's Ethiopian. He's Gentile as well.
2: He's really, really... There are some obvious answers. What prevents me from being baptized? And it's fascinating to just ponder for a moment the hypothetical situation that is not discussed in this account. But it does say that this Ethiopian had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now... If an Ethiopian eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship, given what we just read in Deuteronomy 23, it seems fairly easy to imagine the kind of religious authorities that we encounter in the Gospels being fairly proactive in preventing this Ethiopian from participating very much in the worship that he traveled to Jerusalem to find. Mm. And so there's a whole lot of layers underneath this where, where this Ethiopian is very much an outsider who is locked out. But then also in the scripture, you find passages like Isaiah 56. And in Isaiah 56, there's a couple of remarkable verses. And remember, this is only a couple of chapters further on from the bit that, the, that is read and is quoted here in Acts. But in Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5, for example, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So, what's happening here? It's possible, it's possible that that passage in Isaiah 56 is the reason the Ethiopian eunuch has traveled to Jerusalem to worship. He's looking for that kind of acceptance and, and he's possibly encountered something really different. He asks the question, what prevents me from being baptized? Potentially, tentatively, knowing that there's such a weight of answer that could be given why he cannot be baptized and enter into the assembly. And Philip gives no answer whatsoever. You'll notice Philip doesn't say anything at that point in the story. The Ethiopian calls for the chariot to stop and the baptism takes place. So what's happening here is that Philip, who clearly knows his scripture because he explains it, beginning with the verse that is quoted and, and going through all of scripture, explains the good news about Jesus, but also participates in a kind of interpretive process. There is a clear verse that he seems to ignore. There is another equally clear verse that he seems to fulfill. He sort of has to make a bit of a choice there because he can't just follow both of those verses at face value at the same time.
1: And, and that's one of the real interpretive problems that we have with Scripture uh, because, I mean, that's one example that you've given Locke of uh, where a strict interpretation of the words uh, in one direction in one text uh, are completely opposed by an equally obvious interpretation of Scripture in another direction, so that if we are to reach a conclusion, we have to consciously choose which of those texts to allow to speak and which of those texts are silence. and on what basis do we make such a choice?
0: On what basis do we make such a choice? It's, it's a very good question, Ken, and must we always make the same choice? Could there come a time in our lives where a different emphasis is needed? In other words, does the choice have to be permanent? Martin Luther said, uh, I think it was him, uh, said that the church is like a drunk man trying to get on a horse. First he falls off on the left-hand side and then he falls off on the right-hand side. And, you know, there are passages, I think one of my favourite contrasts um, is in Paul, where in place, in one of his writings, in one spot he says that we are to pray without ceasing. In another spot, he says, "When you pray, don't pray using endless repetitions," <laughs> and that's that's a hard thing to do. But you know, to one group of people, he might be talking to some people who are neglecting prayer, and he's saying, "No, you need to pray more often." And for another people who think that just if you say the right words many many times, and you say it enough, it's sort of like an incantation. Yes, just well, that's not what it's like. Just just a short. Sincere, honest prayer is really what God's looking for. That's That'll do. Um, so so one could imagine that you could make up your mind on some of these difficult issues and then suddenly meet some new circumstance that required you to make it up again. Mm.
1: Um, interestingly enough, uh, and I'm going to a book called Not in God's Name by Jonathan Sachs, um, at page 218, he refers to the fact that, um, uh, well, he quotes R. Samuel Edels. Uh, that the revelation at Sinai took place in the presence of six hundred thousand Israelites, because the Torah can be interpreted in six hundred thousand different ways. Um, uh, uh, so not just not just the left side and the right side of the horse, but uh, six hundred thousand different ways. And I, I really think that's one of the issues that we face, particularly in a culture of uh, like ours, where uh, uh, the individual is the authority um, uh, that we each bring to the text. Um, uh, what we think it should say, and find it there. And perhaps there is something in that, but it's a problem.
0: One antidote uh, for that is to belong to a tradition and to a community. Just further on, I've got the same book. Um, Ken recommended that book to me, and I, I read it, and it's fantastic. Not in God's name. It's about religious violence, the phenomenon of people doing violent things, being sincere people. Sincerely, religious people doing violent things. How does this? How does this happen? Following on from the passage um, you read, Kenneth, he says living traditions constantly reinterpret their canonical texts. That's what makes fundamentalism text without interpretation an act of violence against tradition. It's a bit of a worry, isn't it? In a in a denomination like ours that insists on a plain reading of the text, I'll just read this. He, Rabbi Sack says this is what makes fundamentalism. Text without interpretation, an act of violence against tradition, because that's what a tradition is. A tradition is a a progressively growing concept of what the scriptures say. In fact, he says, fundamentalists and today's atheists share the same approach to texts. They read them directly and literally, ignoring the single most important fact about a sacred text, namely that its meaning is not self-evident. It has a history and an authority of its own. Every religion must guard against a literal reading of its hard texts if it is not to show that it has learned nothing from history.
2: Mm, that's really good. There are, there are a couple of different authors that I've read that explore this idea that in the New Testament, in Christ's ministry and beyond it, there is an active deconstruction of some of the things that were in the Old Testament given as hard boundaries of community. You know, we just explored one here with the eunuch, but there's, um, there's a number of different places where that happens. So, so clearly what's going on in the New Testament church, and it's the, it's the theme of the book of Acts in many ways. What is the thing that we can identify now as the distinguishing characteristic of being in the Christian community? Um, There are people. I mean, in the past,
1: in the past, it had been circumcision. Yes, Uh, and now it's not that. No,
2: no, indeed, and and it's a huge problem that is dealt with across the Book of Acts, and uh, so what I hear you saying there is this. Yeah, this is just one example. The the growth of awareness, the growth of knowledge in this case, really catalyzed by the person and ministry of Jesus Christ is causing the tradition to reevaluate some of the things which had been held pretty fast in the past, but had, had now needed to change. And in fact, of course, even in the past, you know, there's clear examples of people, Rahab, um, Ruth. There are clear examples of people who are outside those strict boundaries, even in the Old Testament times, and yet who are featured very prominently as being central to the community, in uh, uh, definitely in retrospect and sometimes even in real time. So I think that there's real legitimacy here in the way that sometimes we need to really participate a little bit in deconstructing carefully, cautiously, and under the guidance of the Spirit, things which have been held fairly strongly in the past.
1: Mm. I wonder whether or not the the, the fact that the uh, uh, circumcision goes... Um, uh, as a sign and uh, uh, the uh, existence of crushed testicles is no longer a barrier to entry uh, into the church community um, means that we should no longer focus on male genitalia as being uh, a uh, an indicator of uh, whether or not you can be on the religious inn um, and that might have something to say about women's ordination but there you go <laughs> it,
2: It's also possible, Ken, that it has something to say about the the way in which we as religious communities obsess about whether people fit neatly into our pictures of what maleness and femaleness
0: mean You can imagine people perhaps on the fringe of the faith who perhaps are people who who found Judaism suited them very well shaking their heads and muttering amongst themselves, ah, oh, you know, first of all, a few Gentiles are coming in, and now it's eunuchs. We're on the slippery slope. I mean, anyone could get in at this rate. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I think that what's really valuable to highlight here is that it, it's very, very obvious, it's absolutely unavoidable that Philip's prioritisation and interpretation and construction of the story is two things. In verse 35, he begins with this scripture, but he tells the good news about Jesus. So it's focused on the good news about Jesus. And also, Philip is one of the apostles. So Philip's story is informed by his direct encounter of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the revelation of God through Jesus. And so the whatever is going on here and whatever parts of it can be a little bit uncomfortable in a sense that it's kind of saying well, you know, is everything up for grabs? Can we just change what we think about anything? Um, perhaps part of the answer to that is the absolutely
1: riveting focus on Jesus. I wonder whether that takes us to uh, John chapter 1, uh, given that we're looking at the word and the um, the, the word in witnessing, um, uh, whether... whether it might be useful to go there uh, to john chapter one um, with in the beginning was the word
0: i've always found that passage can a difficult one to understand so i hope that you can help me that is to say i I recognize at the forefront that john is employing poetic devices and poetic devices are by their nature implicit rather than explicit and and You refer to ideas by allusion rather than by spelling them out clearly. And as a consequence, you can fit many, many ideas into just a small passage, which is what makes poetry so engaging. In contrast, texts that aim from the outset to be precise are often very dull and take many, many words, something like a legal document, you know, a lease agreement on a rental. Is doing its best to be precise, but it, it's there's a lot of words in there, so I, I recognize that this is poetry and that that it, it may be p- something that we have to dig in a bit deeper, but it is a it is a set of imagery that I've never really had speak to me
1: mm. Mm. well it's interesting you say that because this is one of the passages that um, uh, I've uh, found absolutely fascinating by it, just a simple device of looking at the Uh, nature uh, and function of words uh, and the nature and function of Christ um, and doing a comparison. Um, uh, One of those uh, aspects of a word is that it is a a representation. Uh, It is inevitably uh, a symbol. Uh, So it is a a symbol of a particular concept, a particular uh, state of consciousness, if you like, a thought. Um, it is a means of expression of a thought
0: yeah only a very small number of words are on a matterpic that where the actual sound contains its meaning the rest of them that's not true is it I mean there's nothing about the sound dog that suggests dog a dog in the same way that woof suggests woof
1: or, or that buzz suggests buzz um, um, yeah. but yes look I mean it's it's so it's a, a, a word is an is an expression of um, of a thought or a representation um, of a state of consciousness.
0: What, what you're saying, Ken, it's not just the Word of God that requires interpretation. It's all Word.
1: Uh, absolutely, uh, they don't. They, they don't come in a vacuum. Um, and the only way that we. Uh, this is the other part about interpretation. If we if we go back there, the only way that we come to understand the meaning of them uh, is uh, through. Uh, the commonality of the meaning that those we associate with attribute to them. Um, so again, we come to an interpretive tradition. This is, tu- this is
2: really good stuff, Ken. I'm, I'm enjoying it. But it has reminded me of an amusing event that happened this evening. My tired six-year-old daughter over dinner was asking a string of many questions and reached the question that stumped my wife and I, because she said, why do people give things names?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it always comes with a why doesn't it that, that you're always
1: stumped by the final why
2: so I, I gave a very vague answer about it just makes it easier to talk about the things if there's if there's a if there's a if they have a name um but <laughs> but you know that is really at the heart of what's going on here isn't it the word itself uh, is
1: not the thing no no and, and like i'm sure cameron in the past you've said something to the effect of You know, nobody's ever uh, spoken or written a number. Um, uh, A number is uh, a a concept, uh, but the things that we represent that concept with um, are different.
0: And different cultures have used different symbols and totally different constructs. So Roman numerals isn't just a different symbol. It's a different way of constructing the number. Mm. It's, it's, It's a different interpretive tradition, completely different. So... At the same time, Ken, in as as the words are not the thing, if I'm to explain to Lachlan the aeroplane that we picked up, I'm going to have to use words. Oh, yes. Uh, the words are not the aeroplane, but it's the only mechanism that he could have f- to build a picture of the aeroplane. If I tell him it's orange, for instance. So
1: they have a, ver- they have a descriptive power. Um, and-, and I think that's one of the interesting things about looking at Jesus as the word. Um, uh, he said himself, "You have seen me; you have seen the Father." And so, in the, in that way, um, uh, just as we use a word, the aeroplane that you picked up, the orange uh, aeroplane, and that evokes a certain um, image, and the fact that you use the word aeroplane also uh, speaks something about function, uh, and so and and purpose, uh, and in the same way. When we see Jesus, we see something about the uh, the nature of of God. Uh, we see something about His purpose uh, in the world. We see something about how He works uh, in the world and what He does. So, in that way, I think that this use of word um, as again itself a word describing Jesus um, is a is a wonderful. Um, uh, insight uh, into the purpose of jesus incarnation
0: i guess in that sense it's it's a very fundamental metaphor it's almost a metaphor that you couldn't go any deeper on mm. it's a bit like the kids in the playground aiming i'm trying to think what context this would happen in how many lollies do they want they want a hundred well i want i want a thousand well i want a million well i want infinity well i want infinity plus one there's almost the sense where once you've said that jesus is the original word, then there's no deeper you could go because anything else that you're going to say is going to require words.
1: And, and, and so it all needs to be interpreted through the lens of Jesus. Um, and that's why that's why Jesus is the center um, of the scripture. Everything points uh, to Jesus. The, the, these are they that speak
0: of me. In fact, in fact, Ken, it's not just words. It's light as well. And light is also the light that bounces off my aeroplane and enters my eye. The light is not the aeroplane, but it is the only way I have of experiencing the aeroplane, at least from a distance. Mm. Um, So uh, John's tying into some pretty fundamental images here, isn't he? Christ is the word. Christ is the light that shines in a darkness. Mm.
1: Look, he he certainly is. The other element of, of a word... Uh, here that has a connection with uh, Christ or an analogy uh, with Christ's entry into the world, with Jesus uh, in the world, is that notwithstanding that a word is a symbol, when it is communicated, and that's the entire purpose of a word, is to be able to communicate something, um, uh, when it is communicated, it is always done in a material way. Um, So it is a movement of a concept from one mind, from one consciousness uh, to another. But that movement uh, of that concept, that relaying of the concept, the communication of the concept always occurs in a material way. Uh, So it is with ink and pen and paper um, or um, uh, dots on a screen Um, or vocal cords and air pressure and eardrums. So there is always um, a material interface uh, which uh, leads to that communication. And so we have here with Christ the communication and representation of God uh, and the fundamental core of God's existence as love being communicated in a physical way in the incarnation uh, of Christ,
0: um, and so words words are the incarnation of ideas.
1: Yes, I like that, Cam. I really like mm. that.
2: I like this the this idea of recognizing the incarnational nature of the written word, just as we do with the incarnational nature of Christ as a revelation of God, uh, because just like Jesus was a, a person who lived in a particular place at a particular time historically and had a certain eye color and hair color and um, ate particular kinds of foods and whatever it is that is representative of the culture and world that he lived in as an incarnate messenger or representation or um, revelation of God. So it is with the Bible, the written word, because that is incarnate in the sense that it is, it's not abstracted, eternal disembodiment from the cultures and places and geography and history that it was transmitted through. It, it's it got the imprint of all those things. And I think that for me is one of the ways to, to really make sense. You know, Cam, you mentioned earlier the comment from the student that there's lots of the Bible that is a bit troubling. And I, I agree that especially some of the more violent passages in the Old Testament. And I think that it is very difficult to work out exactly what to do with them, but re- respecting the incarnational nature of the Word, or the written Word, is at least a little bit of help here because you can acknowledge that it's what it, what you read there is not the abstracted, sort of platonically pure, everlasting ideal truth of God. It is the incarnate message of God, and that means that it's imprinted on a particular time, culture, food, language, place, and so
0: on. They asked me, then, if there's so much that requires reinterpretation, why don't we just do it and rewrite the religious text?
1: And in a, to some extent, that is what we do, by allowing some of it to speak and some of it not to.
0: I, t- I told them that when the Bible stops challenging me to be a better person, I'll discard it. And
1: Jesus himself uh, would say, if there is a better way, uh, follow it. Um, um, but... Uh, he, uh, he is clearly the way. Um, and when Jesus stops challenging us to be better, um, uh, then then we're dead. He'll probably be in heaven. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, One of the other things I think about this um, uh, this concept of the word, and I think it's very interesting that uh, in the beginning was the word, and we and and there seems to be an allusion back to the. Creative uh, process. And you'll remember that um, uh, it was God's word uh, that brought light, uh, separated light and darkness. And it was God's word that was involved in uh, the creation, in the organization of the material world. Hmm. Um, so that um, here we see that words, in fact, are not merely descriptive, um, but they have an inherent power. Um, to alter uh, and change uh, the material world, um, uh, they do that both in their material communication, the 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 the, 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 uh, the their use as communication, but they do actually uh, change uh, the world. Um, uh, one of the one of the ways that uh, I experience this in my life and. Uh, frankly, it's a um, uh, at times a terrifying responsibility. Um, is when I pass a sentence um, on a defendant who's appearing before me. Uh, if I oh,
0: say, "Ken," I thought you might mean I thought you might mean pass a sentence in the sense of <laughs> determine its grammatical construction.
1: Well, well, sometimes sometimes I'll say to my wife, "Look, I'm 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 just working on a sentence." And she'll say, Well, that shouldn't take you very long. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, uh, So there's a wonderful ambiguity in that. But, you know, if if I say um, I fine you the sum of $100, well, your bank account, uh, your net worth is now $100 less than it was before. Um, And even more um, seriously, uh, I sentence you to imprisonment for a period of 28 days. That then has an actual physical effect in the world so that uh, it, it changes, it alters the state of reality. Of course, that physical effect has to be implemented by other minds, by other conscious agents, that is, the correctional officers and the like. But uh, it's um, uh, it actually has a physical effect on the world. Um, and God's word in Jesus does that too.
0: Yes, it has had a dramatic effect, at least... I was, I was thinking from a historical perspective, I guess what I should have been thinking of is from a personal perspective, has it had a dramatic effect on me? Well, I think both. Ken, th- this image from John 1 is growing on me. <laughs> um, I, I like it more and more. I've thought of another slight uh, dimension to this. Uh, a verse in Acts when Paul is talking to the people in Athens. One of my favourite stories. Mm, what and a fabulous really story. Really interesting. Isn't it a fascinating story? Because unlike the eunuch... Uh, earlier in Acts, these people don't have the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures right in front of them. And Paul has to make his argument on other grounds and he refers to their own religious tradition. I think that, I mean there's many podcast episodes we could have talking about that, but um, in verse 24 of Acts 17 he says, "The God who made the, wo- the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples. Built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Uh, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him find us, uh, and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And that's the verse I thought of when you were describing the fact that we rely on words to mediate thoughts. Uh, it's no surprise that children's earliest memories are laid about the same time they're learning language hmm. because because language changes the way we think. It, uh, it's very hard for us to be us without language. We, we, we are dependent on them. And children born deaf who don't get early intervention or don't have um, sign, people signing um, have very measurable Problems with brain structure and ability, for instance, to, uh, to think of thing, events in the past and the future. To even have a concept of the past and the future, apparently, uh, is very difficult for people born deaf who have not been exposed to a language of some sort uh, that they can access. We live and move and have our being in words. That is everything. And, and if Christ is the first word... It is in him that we live and move and have our being he He not only created back in Genesis he creates us he He supports us uh and every time we have a thought in words or write a word or describe something in words, mm. we are acknowledging that we're dependent on this this thing language and Christ is the original language hmm
1: and indeed, uh, Jesus, when he was speaking about how we even have our physical existence, uh, when he was responding to the devil uh, in the temptation, and he quoted again the Old Testament, uh, saying, "You know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Um, so it is the word of God that sustains us uh in whom we have our, live and move and have our being.
0: Ken, what a great reference. Now, why didn't we pick that? The devil was being a very good evangelist, wasn't he? Because he cited scripture. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but he just didn't interpret it the right way.
0: <laughs> now, it seems to happen every week we're running low on time. Final thoughts. What's the final thoughts? Obviously, we are to use God's word um, in our own lives so that we have something worth sharing. I think that's a good starting point. And and if we have something worth sharing, then the God's word, if it has helped us, then it may help those around.
2: Yeah, I mean, my final thought would be a, a little bit of a reflection on and a reminder of this phrase of living word. It's not just the person of Jesus who was God's word alive, but I think we... We do the Bible a great disservice if we start to think of it as being a dead document that has said all it needs to say, and, and we have all of the understandings we need to have, and that's that. It's God's living word too. And the way that it lives is as we discuss and dialogue within community, as we seek to interpret under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and in response to the key questions and challenges facing us today. And if we're facing different questions and different challenges to what Christians have in previous generations, then they won't be angry at us and we should not be ashamed of arriving at slightly different pictures of
1: things. Hmm. I like that. I think I would finish with 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13. Um, we've not received... Well, actually, I'm going to go back to verse 11. Uh, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Perfect.
0: Do we then truly believe in the scriptures and the scriptures alone?
1: My answer to that is we cannot, and we are fooling ourselves if we think we do.
0: It's not the question of ought we use the scriptures on their own. I think the better question, you're right, is can we, even if we wanted to? Yeah,
1: and we cannot. Um, Given the nature of words, given the nature of translation, given the nature of language, given the nature of thought, Uh, given the nature of mind and consciousness and the material world um, uh, that we live in, it cannot be the scripture and the scripture alone insofar as we mean the printed word on the page. It is scripture and scripture alone insofar as we mean the printed word on the page uh, read with and to God in the context of our communities and faith tradition.
0: Well, as always, we're out of time, which seems to be a bit of an occupational hazard in, in making podcast episodes on interesting topics. So uh, if you want to take part in the discussion, if you have thoughts that you want to send in, and then please send them to the Gmail address, uh, at gmail.com We'd love to hear from you, and we hope you'll join us again next week.